Hi, I'm Jessica Porter, and welcome back to Sleep Magic, a podcast where I help you to find the magic of your own mind, helping you to sleep better and live better. So good evening, everybody. Um, I want to thank you for being here, for listening, subscribing, leaving reviews. I want to say a special thanks to someone from New York City named JC, who left a review. I'm not sure of your pronouns, but JC really loves it when I say, as your body relaxes, your mind relaxes, etc. And they add, the only minor issue I had was that I wished you'd slow down a little. But JC persevered and kept listening until about six weeks later, they realized they were listening to Sleep Magic on one and a half speed. (laughs) So JC says, so even when you sound like you've inhaled helium, it works. Well, thanks, JC. Thanks for that. And uh, if you didn't know you could change the speed on the podcast, maybe you want it even slower and you can listen at half speed. I don't recommend it, but hey, whatever works. So, tonight, to the lighthouse. Before we get started, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors who make this free content possible. I've been thinking lately of different ways to help you sleep, and I thought it would be fun to do an experiment tonight. I've been researching works of literature that have been recently released into the public domain, and this year, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf is now ours, beyond its copyright, so I thought it might be nice to drift off to some great writing. Not only is To the Lighthouse beautifully written, it's in a style that naturally induces relaxation, or a bit of a trance. It was published in 1927, and Wolfe's husband referred to it as being written in an entirely new style. In fact, he described it as a psychological poem. I love that its semi-stream-of-consciousness style gives it a sort of, like, rivery feel, an up-and-down rhythm that I find soothing and hypnotic. Finally, It's not exactly plot-heavy, so those of you who get engaged in fiction won't get sucked down some narrative vortex. It's a lot of inner exploration and observation, especially in the first part, which I'll be reading from tonight. If you are a diehard Wolf fan, know that I've made the tiniest changes or omissions to keep it sleeper-friendly. I haven't done much, but there's a couple moments that wouldn't help you sleep. Finally, we're going to begin with the normal hypnosis that we do, but when we get to the writing, just let your mind ride the waves. Just allow your awareness to settle gently on the words, on the up and down of the narrative. Let yourself take a journey with me down this word river with its little detours, rapids, and eddies. You don't need to really listen. Just feel the flow. You're getting really good at self-hypnosis and have become entrained with my voice. So with every word I say, you'll find yourself naturally going deeper and deeper into relaxation. And one last thing. If you have any ideas for literature you'd like to hear, please let us know. 
You can leave it in a review or use the Ask Me Anything feature on the Supercast link, which is in the show notes, or you can reach out to me directly on Instagram. We'd love to hear your ideas and whether you enjoyed this episode. So get yourself into a safe and comfortable position, and let's begin. Allow your eyes to close easily and gently. And bring your awareness to your breathing. And your breath doesn't have to do anything fancy. Just bring your awareness to that gentle wave of your breath. Just imagine that your awareness is like a little surfer surfing the wave of your breath. Good. Good. Now I'd like you to bring your awareness up into your eyelids and imagine that the little muscles of your eyelids are feeling loose and limp and relaxed. Allow them to get nice and heavy, sleepy, comfortable. Now I'd like you to accept the suggestion that the muscles of your eyelids are in fact so relaxed that they simply will not open. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to test your eyes to make sure they won't open by wiggling your eyebrows while your eyes remain shut. Of course, you could open your eyes if you really, really wanted to, but allow yourself to pretend that you can't. By pretending you're opening up that inner world inside of you. So test your eyelids right now by wiggling your eyebrows. Oh, look, they won't open. Good. Now this relaxation that you have around your eyes is the exact same quality of relaxation that you will soon have throughout your entire body. So let's imagine this relaxation around your eyes moving back into your head. Feel a warm mist of relaxation taking over every single cell of your brain. Oh, it feels good to let your brain just surrender to relaxation. Your head sinking into the pillow. The muscles of your face becoming soft and relaxed. Letting go. Even your jaw letting go. As you imagine warm waves of relaxation lapping up against the beach of your mind. Feel those warm waves of relaxation lapping up against the beach of your mind. As all mental tension
And that mist of relaxation is moving naturally down now, down through your neck, opening your throat, settling down now into your shoulders, and your shoulders are becoming loose and limp and relaxed. It feels so good to let your shoulders finally relax. And as your shoulders are letting go, all of the responsibilities you carry on those shoulders are falling to the floor. As you sleep, you become free, released, expanded. You go on vacation from your conscious waking state. And all of the responsibilities you're dropping on the floor right now, you can and will pick up in the morning, the ones that are appropriate. But right now, enjoy letting them go. Enjoy your freedom. As that mist of relaxation moves down into your arms, your arms feeling so heavy. Heavy like they're made of marble. Moving down into your hands now, your hands feeling heavy. Every finger feeling. Imagine that mist of relaxation now swirling and spiraling inside your chest. Opening up your whole chest cavity, softening and relaxing inside your rib cage. Allow your heart energy to expand into the room. Allow your whole being to expand into the room. It's okay to let go now. It's okay to be 100% yourself. It's okay to relax. As that mist of relaxation moves down into your belly, down deep, deep, so that your pelvis is feeling heavy on the bed. Allow the muscles in your belly to let go, your lower back melting like butter, your buttocks relaxing. As the mist of relaxation moves down now into your legs, your legs are feeling heavy, like they're made of marble. As the relaxation moves down into your feet, your toes, they're feeling heavy, heavy. 
totally relaxed. Good. To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. The Window. Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay. But you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy, as if it were settled. The expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he had looked forward For years and years, it seemed, was, after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects, with their joys and sorrows, cloud what is actually at hand since to such people, even in earliest childhood, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsay, sitting on the floor, cutting out pictures of the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator as his mother spoke with heavenly bliss. It was tinged with joy. The wheelbarrow, the lawnmower, the sound of poplar trees, Leaves whitening before rain. Rooks cawing. Brooms knocking. Dresses rustling. All these were so colored and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language. Though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity, with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes, impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly, at the sight of human frailty, so that his mother, watching him guide his scissors neatly round the refrigerator, imagined him all red and ermine on the bench, or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. But, said his father, 
stopping in front of the drawing room window. It won't be fine. This enraged James. Such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsey excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence. Standing as now, lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was 10,000 times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth, never tampered with a fact, never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience of any mortal being, least of all his own children, who, sprung from his loins, should be aware from childhood that life is difficult, facts uncompromising, and the passage to the fabled land where brightest hopes are extinguished, our frail barks founder in darkness. Here Mr. Ramsey would straighten his back and narrow his little blue eyes upon the horizon. One that needs, above all, courage, truth, and the power to endure. But it may be fine. I expect it will be fine, said Mrs. Ramsey, making some little twist of the reddish-brown stocking she was knitting impatiently. If she finished it tonight, if they did go to the lighthouse after all, It was to be given to the lighthouse keeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculous hip. Together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco, indeed, whatever she could find laying about, not really wanted, but only littering the room, to give those poor fellows who must be bored to death, sitting all day with nothing to do but polish the lamp and trim the wick and rake about their scrap of garden, something to amuse them. For how would you like to be shut up for a whole month at a time, and possibly more, in stormy weather, upon a rock the size of a tennis lawn, 
she would ask. And to have no letters or newspapers? And to see nobody? If you were married, not to see your wife, not to know how your children were, to see the same dreary waves breaking week after week, and then a dreadful storm coming, and the windows covered in spray, and birds dashed against the lamp, and the whole place rocking, and not be able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea? How would you like that? she asked, addressing herself particularly to her daughters. So, she added, rather differently. One must take them whatever comforts one can. It's due west, said the atheist Tansley holding his bony fingers spread so that the wind blew through them. For he was sharing Mr. Ramsey's evening walk up and down, up and down the terrace. That is to say, the wind blew from the worst possible direction for landing at the lighthouse. Yes, he did say disagreeable things, Mrs. Ramsay admitted. It was odious of him to rub this in and make James still more disappointed. But at the same time, she would not let them laugh at him. The atheist, they called him. The little atheist. Rose mocked, Prue mocked, Andrew, Jasper, Roger mocked him. Even old Badger, without a tooth in his head, had bit him for being, as Nancy put it, the hundred and tenth young man to chase them all the way up to the Hebrides when it was ever so much nicer to be alone. Nonsense, said Mrs. Ramsay, with great severity. Apart from the habit of exaggeration, which they had from her, and from the implication, which was true, that she asked too many people to stay, and had to lodge some in the town, she could not bear incivility to her guests, to young men in particular who were poor as church mice, 
exceptionally able, her husband said, his great admirers, and come there for a holiday. Indeed, she had the whole of the other sex under her protection. For reasons she could not explain, for their chivalry and valor, for the fact that they negotiated treaties, ruled India, controlled finance. Finally, for an attitude towards herself, which no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable, something trustful, childlike, reverential. which an old woman could take from a young man without loss of dignity. And woe betide the girl. Pray heaven it was none of her daughters who did not feel the worth of it and all that it implied to the marrow of her bones. She turned with severity upon Nancy. He had not chased them, she said. He had been asked. They must find a way out of it all. There might be some simpler way, some less laborious way, she sighed. When she looked in the glass and saw her gray hair, her cheek sunk at 50, she thought, Possibly she might have managed things better. Her husband, money, his books. But for her own part, she would never for a single second regret her decision evade difficulties or slur over duties. She was now formidable to behold. And it was only in silence 
looking up from their plates. After she had spoken so severely of Charles Tansley, that her daughters, Prue, Nancy, Rose, could sport with infidel ideas which they had brewed for themselves of a life different from hers. In Paris, perhaps, a wilder life always taking care of some man or other. For there was in all their minds a mute questioning of deference and chivalry. Of the Bank of England and the Indian Empire. Of ringed fingers and lace. Though to them all, there was something in this of the essence of beauty which called out the manliness in their girlish hearts. And made them, as they sat at table beneath their mother's eyes, honor her strange severity. extreme courtesy like a queen's rising from the mud to wash a beggar's dirty foot when she admonished them so very severely about that wretched atheist who had chased them or speaking accurately, been invited to stay with them in the Isle of Skye. There'll be no landing at the lighthouse tomorrow said Charles Tansley, clapping his hands together as he stood at the window with her husband.
Surely he had said enough. She wished they would both leave her and James alone and go on talking. She looked at him. He was such a miserable specimen, the children said. All humps and hollows. He couldn't play cricket. He poked. He shuffled. He was a sarcastic brute, Andrew said. They knew what he liked best. To be forever walking up and down, up and down, with Mr. Ramsey, and saying who had won this, who had won that, who was a first-rate man at Latin verses, who was brilliant, but I think fundamentally unsound, who was undoubtedly the ablest fellow in Balliol, who had buried his light temporarily at Bristol or Bedford, but was bound to be heard of later when his prolegomena, of which Mr. Tansley had the first pages in proof with him if Mr. Ramsey would like to see them, to some branch of mathematics or philosophy saw the light of day. is what they talked about. She could not help laughing herself sometimes. She said the other day something about waves mountains high. Yes, said Charles Tensley. It was a little rough. Aren't you drenched to the skin, she had said. Damp, not wet through, said Mr. Tansley, pinching his sleeve, feeling his sock. 
But it was not that they minded, the children said. It was not his face. It was not his manners. It was him. His point of view. When they talked about something interesting, people, music, history, anything, even said it was a fine evening, so why not sit out of doors? That what they complained of about Charles Tansley was that until he had turned the whole thing round and made it somehow reflect himself and disparage them, he was not satisfied. And he would go to picture galleries, they said. And he would ask one, did one like his tie? God knows, said Rose, one did not. disappearing as stealthily as stags from the dinner table. Directly the meal was over. The eight sons and daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay sought their bedrooms. Their fastness in a house where there was no other privacy to debate anything. Everything. Tansley's tie. The passing of the reform bill. Seabird. Butterflies. People. While the sun poured into those attics, which a plank alone separated from each other, so that every footstep could be plainly heard. And the Swiss girl sobbing for her father in a valley of the Grisson. And lit up bats, flannels, 
straw hats. Ink pots. Paint pots. Beetles. And the skulls of small birds. while it drew from the long, frilled stripes of seaweed pinned to the wall, a smell of salt and weeds, which was in the towels too, gritty with sand from bathing. 